Previously on Target USA. An explosion of spies. Three or four million. Tap that number. Work for China. Unprecedented Russian activity. To collect information about the United States. More than 100 countries working here. A big, big problem. American agents abroad. I looked up and saw a guy looking at me with binoculars. I'm J.J. Green. Join me for The Fog of Espionage. The enemies, defectors, the tactics, U.S. agents, secrets you've never heard. Now, from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The goals of spying don't change. What changes is the technology that enabled them to take place. You want secret information without the other guys knowing they've lost it, but how you get it is always going to be evolving as technology evolves. The future of espionage and the willingness of people to become traitors. To me, what strikes me as um, most overwhelming is the willingness to destroy their entire family. The conclusion of The Fog of Espionage, coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Espionage. It's the practice of spying or using spies, typically by governments, to obtain political and military information. And it can include many layers of subterfuge, disguises, lies. And in today's fast-paced world, the technology that drives it makes it more complicated than ever. The goals of spying don't change. What changes is the technology that enabled them to take place. So goals continue. We want secret information without the other guys knowing they've lost it. But how you get it is always going to be evolving as technology evolves. That's H. Keith Melton, an intelligence historian. He's also on the board at the International Spy Museum. And he put the tactics and techniques into perspective and also the people who use them. What James Bond did is nothing compared to what the real spies have do. And I often say that in the real world, James Bond wouldn't last four minutes. You simply do everything other than what he did. In the James Bond movies, they're kind of about seduction and assassination, where the real world's about secret information and how you can communicate it and use it to help a government or help make better decisions. So as we conclude this series of reports, The Fog of Espionage, we'll take a look at what the future holds when it comes to espionage from three perspectives. One, what the future threats look like. Two, what their objectives are. And three, the U.S.'s preparation to meet the threats. First, the image of future threats. It's been said, Russia wants to destroy the U.S. and China wants to own the U.S. They are seen as the biggest espionage threats in the history of this country. 
But listening to Bill Evanina, director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center at the recent opening of the Wall of Spies exhibit inside their facility, there is another great threat that they need to deal with as well. From the American Revolution to the Cyber Revolution, insider threats among us have caused lasting damage to our national security and a way of life. Today, the adversaries and threats we face continue to evolve and are both persistent and sophisticated. As counterintelligence professionals and custodians of our nation's secrets, we must continue to evolve, evolve as well. Just last week, former DIA analyst Ron Hansen was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison for attempted espionage for China. In the past two years alone, five current or former U.S. officials have been convicted of working with the intelligence services of China to betray America. That is five too many. That's just China. We've seen other IC officials recently charged with giving up American secrets to Iran and other nations. Additional clearance holders have also been prosecuted for disclosing classified information to the media. During a conversation following his speech, Evanina explained how these insiders are going about betraying the U.S. It's ideology, it's, it's money, it's anger, it's you're upset at your government, no one understands me. They make a decision similar to those who walk into a building and, and shoot their co-workers. It's a decision uh, that they make that's we need to prevent. And the insider threat isn't just a spy, but it's also someone workplace violence. We have to identify why they do that. But when you look at this manifestation of human beings, I think the key, JJ, here is that they all work amongst us. Right? They're not hitting in a, in a storage facility or in a place somewhere far on the globe. They're our co-workers. And I think that's the part we want to have realized. Some of your colleagues over at the FBI, which is where you spent a lot of years, have said that this is a really difficult and concerning time because of the number of baby boomers that are out there that are either preparing to leave the workforce and, and look for other work. And the enemy knows that. Uh, and um, because in general, just there are just so many um, opportunities now. For, uh, for the enemy to, to find these people and, and to hire them, if you will. So um, this plays a role in that, uh, to send that message to them. For sure. And we are having an outreach program right now and an educational program to advise and inform uh, those who are about to leave the community and those who have left the community to protect themselves online, especially with social networking sites, invitations to go on the globe and, and, and present or give presentations on their expertise to be able to be understand what that threat looks like when you travel over there and what our adversaries' capabilities are to put you in a compromising position. So we have an aggressive outreach program on that. But yes, because we have such a plethora of experienced intelligence officers and agents retiring now, it's up to us to ed educate them on what those perils are once they retire. Because once you retire, you don't forget everything you were new when you were employed. Despite the efforts that Evanina's NCSC and the rest of the intelligence community have taken, to deal with the insider threat and to deal with the other threats from Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and beyond, there are those who think not enough is being done. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I buy that lots of um, uh, work has been done. Nicholas Eftimiades is a former U.S. Department of Defense, CIA, and State Department official who's an expert on Chinese espionage. What we typically get or things like that are very generic threat briefings that occasionally happen, you know, watch everybody type of thing uh, without the specifics that really allow businesses to act. Um, whereas a uh, national 
Institutes for Standards and Technology has a uh, stand best practices and standards for cybersecurity. There's really nothing related to insider threat, uh, which would be something that, that businesses have to focus on. So I, I don't agree that the U.S. government has done has put together a very coordinated and certainly not an effective campaign in reaching out to uh, to U.S. industry. And that is largely because, you know, that's not really the intelligence community's job. Uh, they're the ones with the data, but it, it has not it is not really their job to do that. So someone needs to, from a policy perspective, pin the rows. Um, and this, I'm guessing, would lie with the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, as well as the FBI, to do the outreach to industry with the specifics that they need to protect themselves. All right. I mean, we do this in other areas. We do this in areas of threat for terrorism. We have an alert system. We uh, we do this in cyber, where we internally share information between the government and industry. And even though that has lots of uh, problems with it due to the classification components, we really don't do it relative to... Um, teaching people how to protect their technologies, how to go through an OPSEC security process, an operation security process. Um, and there's no established reporting chain for just basic threat information. It's really who you know. It's personality-based. So I hear you saying the government hasn't done all it could do. Is that is that correct? Well, I mean, certainly it hasn't. Look, we, we've really only been at this, uh, what, if you want to take a look at the FBI task force, on the China initiative that started in November of 2018. So we haven't really been at this very long. Um, and uh, But it's something that really needs to pick up. And either the government needs to kind of um, put a command structure in place to do this, or the Congress needs to mandate that that's done. But Pete Lapp, a counterintelligence special agent with the Washington field office of the FBI, says it's not just about what the government has to do. So the insider threat risk doesn't just belong to the government with national security information, classified information. The insider threat risk is is pretty extensive in the private sector. When you think about our national security, our economic security is a huge part of that. And where the difference is, is that companies, many companies aren't as, they're becoming a lot more cognizant about the insider threat problem. Um, but until they've been burned, um, they're maybe not as concerned about it as they are once they've become a victim of, of trade secret theft. So that's the direction that we're trying to pursue in the sense that, you know, the CIA, if they have an insider threat problem, they have to, by law, call the FBI. We have to be involved in the investigation. Private industry has a choice not to call the FBI. They can pursue civil remedies. They can fire the person. They can do all sorts of things they are not legally op obligated to call the FBI. And it's been our mission to try and build relationships with the private sector and create the awareness and build that trust so that if they find an insider who's a threat, they are more likely to call the FBI versus just terminate the individual or sue them. And that's been the challenge that we've had probably over the past 10, 10 or 15 years. Threat origins. Yes. Are you seeing anything unique? You know, China continues to be our country's biggest national security threat from a counterintelligence perspective. Don't believe the FBI. I believe the U.S. Um, Intellectual Property Commission, which talks about how China is far and away the most prolific uh, exporter of our intellectual property amongst any other country in, in the world. So China by far, 
from a whole government perspective, I think is our preeminent counterintelligence threat that we have had and will have for uh, probably many, many years to come. Uh, the Cubans, you know, my heart's to them a little bit because I worked them for so long. They're, they've survived this long. The regime has survived this long because they're so good at collecting intelligence. Um, they develop human sources, in my opinion, like no one else. And they don't develop people that do it for money. In fact, they would, they would, they would be suspicious of that. They find folks that have some kind of visceral empathy in what Cuba's trying to do or what their cause is. Um, but far and away, China is our, our biggest counterintelligence. How, how would you break down the tradecraft that's used? You know, infiltrating our industries to steal our innovation is, is a big, big problem. We have, whether it's through academia, whether it's through folks that come here that are uh, naturalized U.S. citizens, they come here as guests, they get their PhDs, and then they go work in industry, and they decide at some point in time that they like that widget, and that algorithm, and that's important to whomever, and they can commercialize it back home, um, and it benefits their, their financial interest and also benefits China, the country at large. Um, not traditional collectors, if you will. Not necessarily intelligence officers, not necessarily folks that are here officially, um, but folks that get access to very good innovation. And you think about it in terms of stealing it from the finished product so that you don't have to do all that R&D and spend all that money and make all those mistakes when you've got a final product that works pretty darn good. You can steal that process and take it home. Um, you know, you're going to impact our national security because it's going to put people's jobs at risk. It's going to it's going to put companies out of business, and that's something that we need to kind of wake up to mm -hmm. as a country and figure out how to address it better. Mm -hmm. uh, because we lose too much innovation, and and we're going to have a lot of problems on the world. And Lap points out a part of that problem is the mentality of people who betray the U.S. To me, what strikes me as um, most overwhelming is the willingness to destroy their entire family. Whether it's their kids, whether they don't have kids, it's their extended family, to destroy their willingness to destroy their families and their families' reputations and their lives to either steal secrets like a Hanson, like a Montez. I mean, Montez's brother and sister worked for the FBI. Um, she certainly didn't enhance their careers. Um, great people, but and her father was a military officer commissioned who was a psychiatrist. I mean, you know, what better way of getting back at dad than to go spy against the Department of Defense, his peers. As you can see, espionage was, is, and likely always will be a powerful lure for some people. In order to figure out where we're going in terms of this espionage problem that not only the U.S. faces, but the entire world, it's important to figure out how we got here. This project started more than 10 years ago when I met Sergei Trechikov, a Russian defector who pulled back the veil on the true nature of Russian espionage against the U.S. May 
2008. I had the maximum security clearance, first in the USSR, then in Russia. That's Sergei Trechikov. He was the station chief of the SVR, or the former KGB, in New York from 1995 until 2000 when he defected. I was deputy He had to talk to us by phone because of his protected status. He says the Cold War never ended. It's not just emotions when I'm telling you that Cold War was never over. It's documented. He says if you compare Soviet intelligence policy with that of today's Russian intelligence, the evidence is convincing. I can tell you, in old Soviet military doctrines, there was a definition of potential main enemy. It was United States, NATO, and China. In today's intelligence doctrine, there is definition of main targets. It's United States, NATO, and China. As you can see, nothing changed. Trechikov laid out exactly how the Soviet and then the Russian intelligence program worked. When I was with the Russian intelligence community, we were recruiting people uh, of all nationalities from all countries, but the main target was, is, and will be uh, the United States. I was running Russian uh, intelligence uh, residency, uh, KGB then became SVR in Canada for five years. We were recruiting people in Canada, we were gathering information in Canada, but again, the main target was, ne- was never Canada. We were looking for American intelligence, you know. And all our targets, all our Canadians who worked for us, uh, we were um, were using them to spy against the United States. And again, nothing changed. It means uh, uh, in intelligence, uh, nothing changes very quickly. It's an old established system. It's one of the oldest, as you know, professions in the world, you know. And it means that uh, what I always, always, what I always repeat, don't, don't relax, you know. Uh, be prepared that nothing, nothing in changes uh, for good from the point of view of Russian intelligence activity in the United States and in the world. Then came a period of research and interviews that laid out a clear threat, not just from Russia. After that, I began laying out what I'd learned, but it was still disjointed and didn't seem to connect what I'd learned to reality. Then, in 2014, a mysterious event took place in Louisiana. Just after 8 a.m. on September 11th, 2014, the Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, began getting urgent phone calls from residents about a text alert. It says, toxic fumes hazard warning in this area. Duval Arthur Jr. is director. He was on duty at the time and recalls the message that came in. Take shelter, check local media. Within two hours, social media users from the Gulf of Mexico to the Great Lakes were inundated with posts about the event. Images of the explosion, a screenshot of the CNN homepage appeared. Even a YouTube video showing someone watching a TV broadcast in which ISIS had allegedly claimed responsibility for an attack on the plant. But not a word of it was true. It was all an elaborately staged hoax. So who did it? I was told that it was the Russians, but I have no I, I have no information on that, none whatsoever. 
but current and former U.S. intelligence officials do. And sources have told WTOP it was a classic Russian troll operation, part of their practice process for the 2016 fake news operation in the run-up to the election. And while there are questions about how they did it, Former DNI Jim Clapper told WTOP, "We should expect to see it again." The success that they achieved is simply going to embolden them to do more. And Clapper has seen evidence they're planning it. Reports of additional Russian intelligence operatives coming to this country. But not all of the blame can be placed on the Russians. Virginia Senator Mark Warner, vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, says. Part of it was our own fault. For a long time in the United States, we have not taken cybersecurity seriously enough. There was evidence that something was happening, but it still wasn't clear what was going on. But in 2016, a week after the election, the story began to come into focus. It's November 15, 2016, one week after the U.S. election. I'm at a NATO conference in Sofia, Bulgaria. The place has been buzzing about Russian interference in the U.S. election. One intelligence source has told me there are no less than 140 English-language fake news outlets in neighboring Macedonia, all for the purpose of manipulating voters' thinking in the U.S. Back in Washington, March 30, 2017, former FBI Special Agent Clint Watts had noticed similar activity, and he told the Senate Intelligence Committee he believed those websites were linked to bots. A closer look at those bots tied in closely with other social media campaigns we had observed pushing Russian propaganda months before. U.S. intelligence believed it was all a part of a sophisticated Russian intelligence operation. They have an extremely capable intelligence service with exceptional cyber capabilities that they have de- repeatedly demonstrated, not only against the United States, but against places like Estonia and Georgia. Robert Litt was general counsel in the office of the director of national intelligence until earlier this year. Former House Intelligence Committee chairman Mike Rogers said this was a part of an overarching doctrine in Russia. And so they took all of their cyber actors and are combining them in this one information warfare center. In an exclusive interview, Virginia Senator Mark Warner, vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, explained how Russia went about its work. Specifically what Russia did, they started a campaign where they hacked into private individual accounts, both parties' accounts, Democrats and Republicans. And Warner said the Russians made a decision. To only release information harmful to the Democratic candidate, Clinton, somewhere mid-spring to summer. Then the U.S. intelligence community erased all doubt. On January 10th, 2017, Director of National Intelligence Jim Clapper revealed Russia had attacked the U.S. We have high confidence that President Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. President Barack Obama knew something was afoot in September 2016, and he had some words with Vladimir Putin. Cut it out, and there were going to be some serious consequences if he didn't. CIA director at the time, John Brennan, warned his counterpart, Alexander Bortnikov, to stop the meddling. Mr. Bortnikov denied that Russia was doing anything to influence our presidential election. But according to a high-confidence, unanimous assessment from the entire intelligence community, Russia was interfering. And it continued. Moscow's influence campaign blended covert intelligence operations with overt Efforts by Russian government agencies, state-funded media, third-party intermediaries, and paid social media users. 
The list of targets was extensive. People and organizations associated with the 2016 U.S. presidential election, including both major U.S. political parties. Republican Senator Marco Rubio was one of those targeted. In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek re-election to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign were targeted by IP addresses uh, with an unknown location within Russia. And on November 8th, after the election results were in, Vladimir Zirinovsky, a Russian politician, celebrated with champagne. And intelligence sources say other Russian government and intelligence officials in intercepted conversations congratulated each other for achieving something they had tried unsuccessfully to do during the entire Cold War. And coming up in my next report, how? Did they do it? They have an extremely capable intelligence service with um, exceptional cyber capabilities that they have de repeatedly demonstrated. And it all happened right in plain sight. After that, I tracked down a troll in St. Petersburg, Russia. My name is Marat Mindiyarov. I'm 43. I'm from Orenburg, but I do live nearby St. Petersburg now, and I'm a courier. Marat was one of those hundreds of people working at the Internet Research Agency on what Rosenstein said was called Project Lakta. On December 15, 2014, Marat began working at the now infamous Internet Research Agency building at 55 Soviskina Street in St. Petersburg, better known in the West as the Troll Factory. He was motivated by three elements. Well, because I was unemployed first, second, it was next to my house, and third, I was curious what's going on inside of this um, building. Many people were curious. We did a 10-minute segment about essentially Russian media, and part of that was the Troll Factory in St. Petersburg, and we talked to Murat, obviously, because he worked there. Zach Fannin, a PBS NewsHour videographer, introduced us to Murat. Marat is a, is a guy who just needed a job, and the job was pretty easy to do. And Marat had told us that just a lot of the people that worked there didn't think too deeply about what they were doing. They just went ahead and, and did it for uh, a paycheck. But this mindless work, performed by many people who didn't have an idea just what it was for, had a devastating impact on the U.S. population. Russian information warfare theory is focused more on framing, on putting the enemy or your adversary into a cognitive box. Russian information operations specialist David Kilcullen. In other words, he's saying what the troll operation was out to do was to simply make Americans think and talk about the things they wanted us to talk and think about. So when you look at basically any five-minute randomly selected stretch of time on MSNBC or CNN or other cable news stations in the United States, and people are talking about a Russian information operation that supposedly happened on the internet in 2016. That's a framing that's been encouraged by Russian messaging. That is essentially what Marat and his comrades were doing at the Internet Research Agency. But working in that environment comes at a cost. Spreading Russian disinformation became too much for Marat, so he quit 
and began exposing the operation. It wasn't the hours that cemented his decision. It was the unethical activities. For the moral reasons, of course, because it was very hard for me. Writing and posting lies was something he could no longer stomach. And when you do it every day and you paid for this, it's also something strange and stressful. When he left, he along with several other former trolls, troubled by what they had learned, began divulging the explosive deception. For several years, nothing happened. But on February 19, 2018, things changed from Indyarov. His apartment was raided and he found himself in police custody. Well, they arrested uh, me and my friend. They told that the, from the phone of my friend was made the call about the bomb. They were accused of making a bomb threat. Nothing came of it and they were released the next day. But friends of Murat say it was a shot across the bow to keep his mouth shut. But he's refused to do that. Russian government uh, and Mr. Putin, yeah, they are leading the country to the some troubles. Now we are occupied by these untrue, unfair people who are just using uh, the resources of the country, who are lying us every day, who are suppressing our freedom. Seeing the inside of a troll house and recognizing the international gravity of the situation and deciding to speak out about it despite the inherent danger of crossing the Kremlin has made Marat Mindyarov something of a hero to some. He's reluctant to accept the title, but focused on warning Americans about the trap. And he offers two pieces of advice. Never go to the fabri troll fabric, <laughs> never. <laughs> and uh, be careful when you are reading something because it can be fake. Always double check. Then, there was the U.S. connection. March 1st, 2007. It was a rainy, cold night in Adelphi, Maryland. Paul Joyal was returning home after a meeting with a friend at Zola, the swanky restaurant attached to the Spy Museum in downtown Washington. After pulling into his driveway about 7.30 that evening, and stepping out of his car. There were two men waiting for me in the bushes. He was attacked from behind. I struggled with uh, the first man, the assailant. Joyal, a former federal law enforcement officer, took his attacker to the ground. The assailant called out to his accomplice for help, saying something Joyal will never forget. He said, shoot him. One shot from a nine millimeter pistol rang out piercing his colon and bladder. The lights outside his house flew on. His dog started to bark. Panicked, the assailants tried to end the encounter and Joyal's life. Then they came in to shoot me again in the head and the gun jammed. The shooter cleared the weapon. He tried again and the gun jammed again. At that point, the attackers fled the scene in the direction of the cemetery in back of my home. Once they entered the cemetery, they were never seen again. The case has never been solved. But Joyal had an idea who was behind it. And as he fought for his life that night, he asked his wife to make an urgent phone call. I made sure she called and alerted Oleg Kalugin. Oleg Kalugin, a former major general in the KGB who defected to the U.S., was the person that Joyal met for drinks at the spy museum. They had three key things in common. They were former business partners, 
They were critics of Vladimir Putin, and they were friends with Alexander Litvinenko. As investigators continued to scratch their heads about who did it, one key fact dominates their attention. Four days ahead of his shooting, Joyal and Kalugin appeared on a Dateline NBC program titled, Who Killed Alexander Litvinenko? They both pointed the finger at the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. Curiously, two other people who appeared on that program talking about Russia's assassins turned up dead. Boris Berezovsky found hanged in his bathroom in London, and Daniel McGrory, a London Times reporter, had a heart attack. And earlier this year, the secretive world of spying, it's right here in front of us. But because of their training and our naivete as average citizens, we often miss it. Everybody in the espionage business is working undercover. So if they're in Washington, they're either in an embassy or they're a businessman. And you can't tell them apart because they never acknowledge what they're doing. And if they're good, they're, they have no trace of their communications. And while we often unknowingly stumble over spies because we don't know what we're looking for, they, on the other hand, are very clear about what they're looking for. And it's not always the obvious. In fact, as the late Sergei Trechikov, Russia's top spy who defected to the U.S., said before he died in 2010, their orders from President Boris Yeltsin were quite clear when it came to spying on President Bill Clinton. I want to know what the President of the United States, in his time it was Clinton, I don't, I'm not interested what he has on his table. I want to know what he has under his table, what, what he's hiding from me. The tactics of the U.S.'s two biggest enemies have changed, but Douglas Wise, former Deputy Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and a former Central Intelligence Agency senior officer says, the objective is still the same. The Russians want to destroy us. The Chinese want to own us. Both Russia and China have raised the number of operatives here in Washington. And according to Bayer, it would be virtually impossible to pick them out. The dark net and various private, you know, encryption, you know, algorithms and the rest of it, you could operate right here in Washington, D.C. And if you're good, and you're disciplined and careful, the FBI will never see it. And now, we know where we stand. So the question begs, where do we go from here? If you've been listening to this series, you know that on the morning of February 2nd, 1993, Jim Wolsey sat in a confirmation hearing to become the director of the CIA and made a sobering statement. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The Cold War was supposedly over. It was the conclusion of a brutal, tense, all-or-nothing 40-year struggle during which much of the world teetered on the brink of possible extinction with powerful arrays of nuclear weapons on both sides pointed at each other. Political pressure, Western intelligence victories, and paranoia among the Soviet leadership, according to historical documents, eventually toppled the communist regime and the U.S. emerged as the world's only superpower. Wolsey told the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence that morning, quote, We have slain a large dragon, but we now live in a jungle 
filled with a bewildering variety of poisonous snakes. And in many ways, the dragon, he said, was easier to keep track of. That statement became legend to many in the intelligence community over the last 26 years, and to some it's become prophetic. But speaking to Target USA on September 17, 2019, Wolsey said he was wrong. It looks like the dragon, he said, wasn't slain after all. He said it's wounded and it's angry. As the fog of espionage surrounding the U.S. continues to thicken, one thing's clear. There will be no rest for U.S. counterintelligence officials for a very long time. That concludes this series of reports. But coming up in our next episode, something you won't want to miss. By now, you know the story of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist who was killed in Istanbul inside the Saudi consulate seeking documents to marry his fiancée. Now, this explosive revelation. Jamal, we agreed to get married in my big holiday, which is in June, the 17 days in June. I arrived to uh, Washington, 2nd of June. He was waiting for me in Washington, D.C. airport with the marriage ring. That is the voice of Hanan El-Attar. She and Jamal Khashoggi, according to documents she presented to us, got married in June four months before he died in Turkey, seeking documents to marry another woman. But there's one problem with El Atar's story. The imam did not sign the marriage certificate and won't sign it. I will keep fight until I get my marriage being recognized and I get my dignity back because my family trusted me and I chose this man, which is I trust him and I love him and I steal. I steal Holden to recognize my marriage. There are many issues to unpack with this story, including the existence of the woman Khashoggi was seeking to marry when he went to Istanbul, why the imam performed this marriage ceremony but then wouldn't sign the certificate, and what El Atar is really after in this case. That's coming up in our next episode. That's it for this edition of Target USA. If you have any questions or comments, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Follow us on Twitter at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's at TUSA Podcast. Also, if you're interested in more national and international security issues, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. As always, I want to offer a very big thank you again for listening to the show. We'd like to ask a small but very important favor of you. It'll only take a few minutes, and if you're one of the first people to do it, Podcast One will make it worth your time, literally. We need you to complete a short survey, because the information you give us can help make things better for the show and you as a listener. Just go to podcastone.com slash survey, and everything will be right there for you. That's podcastone.com slash 
survey. The first 250 people to complete the survey will get a $10 gift certificate to Amazon.com. And two grand prize winners will be selected at random to get a $100 Amazon gift card. How about that? Free money. It's a win-win. Our shows are supported by advertisers. So filling this out will really help us cater to your needs as a listener. So please go to podcastone.com slash survey, answer some questions, and potentially make some money along the way. And thank you for being a dedicated listener. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.